Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood, the podcast which celebrates being a child in 1970s Britain and the central part that television played in our and our families' lives during that decade. The 1970s was a strange decade for Britain. The confidence and innovation of the 60s, with the explosion of popular culture in the form of the Beatles, swinging London, whatever that was, and the permissive society, seemed to suggests that Britain was finding a new identity in the world post its imperial past. But that seemed to come to a bit of a grinding halt in the 1970s when, as a country, we were faced with the reality of our post-industrial future, the decline of British mass manufacturing, economic hardship with high inflation, low growth, strikes everywhere, and eventually the British government having to go to the IMF cap in hand for a bailout. It all sounds a bit grim, doesn't it? But for me, and lots of you listening, I suspect, the 1970s represents a time of innocence, of having fun, and of happy memories. It was our childhood, and running through that as a central core was television, which provided me not only with entertainment, but acted as a window on the world where I discovered new excitements, saw faraway places, and provided a focal point for a common shared experience, which I don't think we get in the same way today. As usual, thanks for all your comments and emails, and particular thanks to those of you who've already responded to our corrections and confessions feature. If you haven't heard about it, then listen very carefully. We love hearing from you here at My Senses TV Childhood. Hearing your memories of how the show has made you think of your childhood TV favourites is one of the most rewarding parts of making this podcast. But I need your help. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that I try and recall things from memory, and, given the 1970s was a long time ago, I can sometimes, how should I put it, misremember things, and that's where I need you to help me. When you hear me plainly getting it wrong, I'd like you to send me a correction, along with your own favourite 70s TV show or your childhood confessions. The more corrections and confessions, the better. And I'll feature some of them in future episodes. Send your corrections and confessions to corrections at my70stvchildhood.com. I would love to say in true 70s style, answers on a postcard, please. But in a concession to the 21st century, let's just say answers on an email instead. Thank you and look forward to hearing from you. Off the back of the cool 1960s vibe, There were several TV shows which reflected the feel of the times. I didn't appreciate many of these until they were shown again in the 1980s during the early days of Channel 4, and they opened up for me more understanding of the monumental changes to British society in the 60s. They were smart, smoothly produced, and exciting shows with handsome leads who went about their business with panache and often a sharp wit. The sorts of shows I'm thinking of included Roger Moore in The Saint, but further developed into other shows like Man in a Suitcase.
I couldn't resist playing a snatch of that brilliant theme tune, even though it is a 1960s show. Yes, and I do know that it later became the theme to Chris Evans's TGIF show on Channel 4. Anyway, Man in a Suitcase was yet another flashy production from Lou Grade's ITC Entertainment Studio, and it dealt with a disgraced US Secret Service agent called McGill, played by Richard Bradford, who had been framed for a misdemeanour that I can't quite remember, and then spent his time as a private eye, travelling around Europe, solving crimes and trying to clear his name. It was cool full of beautiful people and exotic locations, although I think some of them were stage lots on the ATV studio in Boreham Wood, incidentally now the home of EastEnders. It was slick, international, and every inch embodied the confidence of the 1960s. Man in a Suitcase had replaced Danger Man, which was, well, essentially the same show, more or less, but starred Patrick McGowan as a rather cool British agent this time, called John Drake who spent his time quietly saving the world. McGowan left Danger Man to make his own show, The Prisoner, which was to become one of the standard bearers for what 1960s British programming represented. It was expensively shot, had a range of famous faces in the cast, and was completely bonkers. Its storylines, based on McGowan's character being imprisoned in a strange village and shot in Port Merion in Wales, were pretty incomprehensible and and possibly even drug-related, but the show was hugely popular. All of these shows, to a greater or lesser extent, owed a debt to a show that first screened in 1961 and which achieved huge success both in the UK and in the US. It was cool, it was clever, and dare I say it, sexy in a very 1960s kind of way. The Avengers was originally created by Sidney Newman, who later became one of the creative drivers behind Doctor Who, but who was never actually officially credited for his idea on The Avengers. In reality, the show was developed and built into the worldwide success it became by Brian Clemens and Albert Fennell, with Clemens being the creative force behind the writing, which developed more and more bizarre scripts as the decade went on. It ran for 161 episodes, until 1969, when Clemens stepped away because, it's rumoured, he couldn't think of any more bizarre directions in which to take the show. Now, once again, I didn't see The Avengers until it was repeated, again on Channel 4 in the 1980s, so I wasn't really aware of its legacy or influence when I was a child growing up in the 70s. I knew nothing of John Steed or Mrs Peel, and all of the bizarre plot lines. As far as I know... It wasn't repeated much in the 1970s, so I was in the dark when, in 1976, a huge fuss was made about a new show which Brian Clemens had developed to bring back the Avengers, but in a way which adapted the idea to fit into the 1970s. And so it was that an excited nation sat around their televisions in expectation in October 1976 to see what Clemens had come up with. I remember that it was a Friday night, as I was allowed to watch television a bit later on Fridays and Saturdays. And boy, we were not disappointed.
From its opening titles, the new Avengers oozed excitement. I remember that first episode vividly. We were introduced, or reintroduced for older viewers, to John Steed, played by Patrick McNee, the natty, bowler-hatted British agent, and met his two sidekicks, Mike Gambit, a smoothie in a beige suit, played by Gareth Hunt, and Purdy, the glamorous ex-ballerina with lethal martial arts skills, played by Joanna Lumley. The team was smart, sassy, and ruthlessly efficient. And even as a small boy, just watching them on screen made you somehow proud to be British. Apparently, Brian Clemens had tried to create a grittier, less eccentric version of the original Avengers show. But on the basis of that first episode, I think he must have been kidding. It was called The Eagle's Nest and revolved around strange goings-on on a remote island called St Dorca and the monastery there. Somehow, I can't quite remember how, Steed, Gambit and Purdy all end up on the island, which is full of monks in flowing robes shuffling silently about the island. It's all rather sinister, and there's also something about a German scientist played by Peter Cushing, who had been kidnapped and taken to the island. He was an expert in cryogenics, and the monks had some mysterious need of his skills. Anyway, at one point, Steed manages to disguise himself as a monk and infiltrates his way into the monastery. He ends up in a crowd of monks in the chapel, where, at a given signal, they all stand up, drop their robes to reveal, wait for it, that they're all wearing Nazi uniforms and start chanting Zeke Heil and making Nazi salutes. Eventually, they all turn around to Steed, who's still in his robe, who smiles at them, holds up his hand in a V for victory salute and says... Rule Britannia? It turns out that the whole island is dedicated to restoring the Third Reich, and that Adolf Hitler's body is in the deep freeze in the monastery, hence the need for Peter Cushing's scientist. Anyway, after lots of fights, the dispatch of several Nazis, and a great display of high-kicking martial arts from Purdy, the chief Nazi ends up shooting Hitler by accident, just as he's rising from his coffin. Oh dear. Anyway, Fourth Reich avoided, and Britain rules the waves. Hurrah! Now, some of you who are listening, who have never seen the show, may be thinking, what the hell is Oliver talking about now? It sounds like a ridiculous plot, and too ludicrous to be the least bit entertaining. Well, it was ridiculous, but brilliantly done, and, for a nine-year-old at the time, absolutely enthralling. The show was an instant hit, both with UK audiences and with my family. I only learned later that my parents had enjoyed watching the original Avengers during the 1960s, so it was enjoyable for them, and the Friday night time slot made it perfect for family viewing. Other episodes of note from that first series included one called Target, where our heroes investigated the deaths of several British agents, seemingly from natural causes. They tracked down the common factor to a training range, where Purdy had just scored a 99% score. But it turned out that the blank bullets contained poison, and it only took 1% to kill you. Mm, Fiendish, eh? Eventually, the perpetrators are rumbled and banged to rights, and the antidote to the poison is found in the bowler hat worn by an automaton version of John Steed, which was part of the training range firing exercise. Still with me? It was all great stuff and particularly memorable to me as I used the story practically without any edits as the basis for an English essay in my first year at secondary school and got a top grade. If Mrs Green, 
my first year English teacher happens to be listening. I hope you'll accept my full and forthright confession. It was too good an opportunity to miss. Although I do remember being amazed at the time that neither Mrs. Green nor her husband, Mr. Green, our music teacher, watched the new Avengers. The whole of that first series was a joy to watch. And as the series continued, the whole idea of it being grittier and more realistic than the Avengers began to seem less and less credible. I remember the last episode of the first series was an absolute belter. Well, for nine-year-olds at least. The story revolved around two brilliant scientists who had developed some kind of radioactive isotope thingy. Look, I'm not a scientist, so my description may be a bit vague here. Which was designed to help grow plants and animals very quickly and to enormous sizes to help eradicate world hunger. All very good motives there. Well, as often happens in film and TV, there was an accident and some of the isotope is spilled and goes down the drain into London's sewerage system. And before you know it, there's a giant rat marauding the streets of London, killing anyone who gets in its way. Obviously, Steed, Purdy and Gambit end up in the sewers trying to hunt down the monster rat, and it all starts to get a bit silly, even for me as a nine-year-old. But it was great fun, as all the actors managed to play it pretty much straight. Even when the fearsome rat is finally sighted, and is clearly just a normal rat, superimposed using not very good special effects to make it look like a giant one. Oh yes, I should have also mentioned the episode was called Gnaws, G-N-A-W-S. You know, like Jaws, except with a rat instead of a shark. All in all, quite hilarious and very memorable, but not especially realistic and gritty. That first series of the New Avengers was hugely popular and always proved a talking point at school on a Monday morning. By general consent, Steed was brilliant as their lead, Gambit was a tough guy action hero, and we all loved Purdy. And I think that the main principles were a big reason the show worked so well. Patrick McNee just turned up and reproduced John Steed of the 1960s, although with noticeably less action shots and fights. That department was left to Gareth Hunt as Gambit, with his expert use of violence when required, his ready wit, and his always slightly flirtatious banter with Purdy. Joanna Lumley made that part her own, and provided a great foil to Gambit and Steed, always holding her own against the very predictable male chauvinism of her fellow secret agents, and also of her enemies. For Gareth Hunt, it may well have been the peak of his career. He was already well known to TV audiences as a star of ITV's Upstairs Downstairs, but became universally identified as Gambit thanks to the new Avengers. And whilst he had lots of acting work afterwards, the main thing he was famous for, post-New Avengers, was the Nescafe coffee adverts, where he appeared, basically as Gambit, being a smoothie towards Diane Keane, and shaking his closed hands before magically revealing a handful of coffee beans. Well, Gareth, I hope it was well paid. As for Joanna Lumley, the role of Purdy catapulted her into becoming a national treasure, beloved by the British public. She went on to star with David McCallum in Sapphire and Steel, the enormously popular sci-fi show of the late 1970s, before cementing her place in popular culture in the 1990s as Patsy in Absolutely Fabulous. As for Patrick McNee, he will be forever known as John Steed, and the role brought him fame and fortune. He relocated to California, 
And as well as living off the royalties of the Avengers and New Avengers, he popped up in lots of TV shows, always playing the English gent. Well, I suppose always playing John Steed, and appeared to have a very happy life and career. He also appeared in several films, including the Bond film A View to a Kill, and, in one of my favourites, as Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg in This Is Spinal Tap. So back to the show. I'm afraid that after the bright firework of the first series, the second series was not as memorable or successful. The show was slick, well shot, and therefore expensive to make, and despite it being a smash hit in the UK, it didn't do as well as hoped in the US. So halfway through the second series, the storylines were relocated to Canada, and the show was subtitled The New Avengers in Canada, and it didn't work so well, at least not for me. Part of its success was that it was quintessentially British and set in recognisable British locations. Taking the characters away from that made it feel more international and therefore less distinctive and more derivative. After the end of the second series, the money had run out, and that was the end for Steed and Co. Brian Clemens had become less and less interested in the new Avengers and more and more preoccupied with his new venture, which was about a secret government department called CI5, and a unit of that department led by a Le Carre-type spymaster called George Cowley. I suspect we're going to hear more about that one in a future episode. Do you remember the new Avengers bursting onto our screens? What did you think about Steed, Gambit and Purdy? And did you have a copy of the plot of a TV show to write an essay at school, passing it off as your own idea? If so, or if you have anything else you'd like to share on this or any of the other episodes of our podcast, I'd love you to get in touch. You can find our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. We're on Facebook and YouTube at my 70 TV Childhood. You can tweet at 70s TV Childhood, or you can email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. Oh, and don't forget our corrections and confessions feature. That's all for now. So thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe and rate us on your favourite podcast provider. And most of all, if you've enjoyed listening to My 70s TV Childhood, tell your friends. Join me again soon for more of the same from My 70s TV Childhood. Thank you.